Before we start, just a quick content warning. Today's episode contains discussions of sexual misconduct and abuse of power. I think part of the issue is that YouTube doesn't really view itself as like a massive employer, but I do. <laughs> hey everyone, I'm Legion here along with my co-host Nathan Bichez. Hello. And this is Means of Creation, a weekly conversation where we deep dive into the fashion economy and the future of work. This show is made by Every, a writer collective focused on business. You can find us at every.to, where every week Lee and I publish an original essay on what's happening in the creator economy. This week on the show, a conversation about how powerful creators and the platforms that enable them can be held accountable for misdeeds, and what we can do to create a safer ecosystem for all involved. As the industry matures and some creators gain massive wealth and power, it's inevitable that some will abuse that power. But when that happens, what can be done? On the internet, there are no gatekeepers, which is the reason there's so much original, amazing content that we all love. But there's also a downside to that. Too often, there's no one there providing accountability for harmful and abusive behavior. This is the problem that today's guest, Kat Tenbarge, wants to solve. She's an investigative journalist at Insider, who earlier this year published an explosive report containing rape allegations by a member of David Dobrik's blog squad, during a filming event. The fallout from the story was bigger than anything we've seen in our career so far. Dobrik lost sponsors, had to sell his ownership stake in the new LA soccer club, Angel City FC, and had to step down from the photo sharing startup he co-founded called Dispo, and VCs ended up severing ties with the company. And while this may be the biggest story Katz reported on to date, this is hardly the only one. Her reporting over the past year has solidified into a new beat that she calls Influencer Watchdog. In this conversation, we talk about what it's like to go up against some of the world's most famous and beloved creators, what outcomes she wants to see from her reporting, how creators are responding by trying to become uncancelable, and the unique ways that these misdeeds happen in the creator economy versus in the traditional media industry. So I'm really excited to have her here and just want to say welcome and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So the first thing I want to know is what did it feel like to publish the Vlog Squad expose? It was sort of this experience that I've never had before with publishing a story where you expect the biggest drop to be the day that obviously the article is actually published. And in the past, when I've had stories do really well, that's always been the case. It's been like, the story comes out, there's a big buzz around it. And then over the next few days, like it starts to fade and people talk about it less. And with the David Dobrik story, it was the exact opposite. And it really right. became more of like a David Dobrik story, just because Dom kind of went underground in those few weeks that and like initially played out. And David was the focus because everyone knows who David is and not very many people, particularly in like the venture capital community or people who don't really watch the vlogs. Like a lot of people didn't know who Dom was, but everyone knew David and everyone knew the vlog squad. And I think when the Spark Capital announcement came out, like venture capital isn't my forte. However, the word that I kept hearing and the word that people kept saying to me was just like, this is unprecedented. This is unprecedented. So Mm -hmm. that meant a lot because I had never expected something like that to happen because of the story. Was it the outcome that you were hoping for? Or was there an outcome you were hoping for? When I first started interviewing Hannah, I think one of the first questions I asked her in like one of our initial interviews was sort of like, what do you think accountability would look like in this situation? And I was really interested 
in that because in the past with stories about sexual assault, particularly ones that happened like years ago, obviously like the route to justice isn't going to be the actual justice system. Sometimes the statute of limitations passes right. or in this case, like she had never wanted to go to the police. That was never like something she wanted to do. And at the time I remember she said, I don't really know. I think that's a really good question. But I think that like the number one thing I would want to happen is have the vlog squad members and Dom recognize what happened so that hopefully it doesn't happen again. And so that was kind of my thought process as well was just, you know, let's make the biggest splash possible with this story so that people really have to reckon with the type of content that has become so normalized on YouTube. And with this like incentivization system of doing these sort of really like shocking on screen, like comedy moments and like how difficult that can actually be for the people filming them. So I definitely didn't have an outcome in mind of like David would have to step down from Dispo. But when that happened, it didn't feel like a bad thing. It felt like people were finally taking this sort of stuff seriously. Right. And I think ultimately it's like, it sounds like the key thing is just if you're a person in a David Dobrik type situation, like you've got a big audience, you've got a group of people that are really interested in being close to you, being in your content. They don't want to insult you. They don't want to get on your bad side because then they'll miss out on a lot of opportunities to really think about the power dynamic and to think about how you're using that rather than just do what in the moment feels like it's going to be funny or like it's going to get a lot of views or whatever. And if there's no accountability, then why would you have anything to fear? Because you've never seen anything happen that's like bad to anyone and you don't even realize the impact you're having on other people. Or maybe you do and you just don't care. But like now you have to, if you're not going to care like organically, yes, you should at least be worried that there will be consequences for you, you know? Definitely. And I feel like This whole genre on YouTube of these like fast paced vlogs with like ensemble comedy skits, there haven't been consequences. And there's very clearly, even just from the viewer's perspective, elements that are problematic, elements that appear to be exploitative, and yet it went unchecked for so long. Yeah, I remember that there had been various controversial things that the vlog squad had done over the years. And David Dobrik in particular, one episode springs to mind, which was like the Japanese snack review video where he was, I think, pretending to speak with like a Pan-Asian accent Mm -hmm. and people found that offensive and nothing happened. He continued on in his career. So I agree with you, like the kind of like pushing people's buttons and doing things that are kind of edgy and like on the border of what people would find acceptable behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, That seems to be pervasive online. And usually these folks are just so popular that they can't be held accountable until a line gets crossed, Mm -hmm. I think. And do you think that in this case, it was was because it was a criminal law that got crossed that finally something was something happened and there was finally accountability or where do you think that line is if there is even one universally i feel like there probably isn't a straight universal line except for and obviously this wasn't the case here but i think if someone were to die (laughs) because of a youtube video that would be a universal line of like outrage and you can't come back from that but really the reason i say that is partially just because so many people have gotten injured in sometimes really grievous ways because of YouTube stunts. And that doesn't always seem to be a line. I think with the David Dobrik story, it was the perfect storm that made it so impactful. I think one thing I've really noticed when covering creators is the impact of a story will depend on how it meshes with that person's reputation. So like, for example, I've done stories on 
people like Jeffree Star, who is very controversial already Mm -hmm. and really widely hated by a lot of people, similar to like the Paul brothers. Um, He has that kind of a reputation already. So when I say, oh, Jeffree Star allegedly did this really horrible thing, the reaction tends to be either from his fans, well, no, he didn't, or from the people who already dislike him, well, we're not surprised. With David, you had someone who for so long was like the boy next door of YouTube. Like, even if you didn't love David's content, your opinion of him, like the reputation he had was really good natured, like he was a really good guy. And so I think the juxtaposition of something as shocking as the allegations with David's character created that line that was then able to be crossed. Right. Interesting. So if your brand is already one that is super controversial and hated, then it might even be harder for them to ever cross a line for fans to turn against them or for advertisers to turn against them. Right. It almost reminds me of like Trump. Like there's so many things that other politicians would like never be able to get away Mm -hmm. with. But like, if you have no shame and the people who love you, like just don't care, Mm -hmm. like the thing he said about being able to shoot someone on Fifth Avenue or whatever is like kind of right. And so like, it's interesting how if you're like, you know, Jake Paul or whatever, and it's like, everybody knows, like, just obviously that's your persona is like, you're kind of a douche or whatever. Like that's like his sort of personal brand. Right. And like, he's trying to be funny with it or like whatever, but like, it's like no one's surprised really kind of that. Like you read the Taylor Lorenz story that came out today, I think, or maybe it was yesterday. And um, you're like, yeah, it sounds like Jake Paul. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it doesn't hit the same way as David Dobrik where it's like, there's some degree of like, is that fair almost like just because everyone knows someone's sort of probably a jerk, like, should they be punished less because of it? Or like, do they create an incentive for themselves to like project that persona and like get away with stuff? Or I don't know. It's It's fascinating. I'm sure this is not the intended effect of your writing, but part of it raises the question of like, if you're a creator, what can you do to cultivate this aura of uncancelability? Yes. What do you do? What do you say? How do you like create content consistently in a way that makes you more defensible against cancellation? Yes. I think that perhaps it's not spoken, but I do think that that is the mindset that a ton of popular creators have. And you see that play out in big ways and little ways, because there are so many creators, I think, especially right now where we're at in terms of YouTube culture, and obviously this plays out on other platforms, but you have a lot of people who rose to fame on YouTube because of good reasons. Like Nikita Dragon is someone who I always use as an example, because Mm -hmm. Nikita became really famous because she was transitioning and her transition was really empowering. It was representative of something that doesn't get shared a lot. And, you know, I think she was widely appreciated for sharing that with her audience, um, particularly in the beauty space. And then after Nikita transitioned, and I want to say maybe a year, two years, a couple years after that point, her views started to really go down and her content did not have the impact that it had had previously. And as her star started to fade a little bit, which we see with every generation of YouTubers, like they're popular, but it doesn't last forever. When Nikita's star started to fade, she switched up her style so much. And now she is in this role of constantly creating controversy, but nothing so big that it would shatter her entire image. Right. Hmm. Yeah. This is like a guiding framework that they have in the back of their minds, like how to stay relevant and toe the line, but not cross it and and cultivate an uncancelability. How much do you think this kind of stuff has uniquely bad and harmful consequences because of the sort of almost like decentralized nature of the way that media works on a platform like YouTube versus like 
obviously, you know, the Me Too movement was centered around bad behavior within traditional industries that like, you know, technically had HR departments or whatever, and like, obviously failed to the function of HR is really to protect the company. It's like controlled by the (laughs) board of directors, really. So like, you know, it's not going to do a ton for you. Like, do you feel like this is worse or just kind of the same thing where it's like anytime there's power and fame and attention that people need to harness in order to continue their power and fame and money like that, they're just going to do bad things? Or like, is there something uniquely harmful about the way that it works in this sort of like new, more open platform world? I think about this a lot. Like, I think this is one of those types of questions that guides a lot of my reporting philosophy. And my take on it is generally, I don't think that YouTubers or influencers are necessarily more likely to be exploitative people. But I do think that there's a type of personality where you're drawn to fame that is different, maybe than other industries that are less in the limelight. But beyond that, I think that the real issue lies in the total lack of regulation and the total lack of like any sort of accountability framework in the influencer industry. And you see that in comparison to the Hollywood, the entertainment industry, because like in Hollywood, child stars, I think this is the perfect example, child stars can only work a certain number of hours a day. All of the money that they make, a percentage of it has to go into like a safe account so that their parents can't spend all their money. And that is so stark compared to family vlogging on YouTube, which personally, and I think this isn't a hot take, but I family vlogging is a really damaging, <laughs> I think, phenomenon in a lot of cases because you have kids growing up on screen, everything they do, their whole lives are in pursuit of getting the most attention online. And that is just a really unhealthy dynamic to mature in and to become a fully fledged human being in. And there's no laws, there's no regulations, there's no one saying objectively, is this in the child's best interest? Yeah, I think it raises really interesting questions about labor laws and the nature of work. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, plenty of folks make home videos and document their children's lives from a young age. And as long as they do that for free without making any money, it's like normal. It's just like part of being a parent. But the moment that you put it online and start using it to accrue fame in an audience, I think that then it becomes work. Mm -hmm. And like, what does it mean for a child from the age at which they're a baby to consent to work and to consent to be monetized? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, same with animals and all of these pet influencers too. Like they don't know what's going on. They're not consenting to to do work and someone else is monetizing that work. It is really interesting. And I think that's just like a reflection of how work and labor is shifting too. Mm -hmm. Totally. And even beyond just like work versus just capturing an authentic moment or whatever, like in terms of like the same act of like videoing or whatever, when you're doing it for views, you have to put your kid in situations that are people are going to want to watch. So like maybe it's harmless a lot of times, but like, you know, especially when people are feeling kind of like threatened, like, oh, we're not getting as many views as we used to, then they start to do crazier things. Like we've talked about some previous examples and that can be really dangerous for kids, obviously. Definitely. Um, Dangerous for anyone. I mean, we just saw today or whatever the like Jeff Wittick mm-hmm. like getting his face smashed in by David Dobrik operating a crane or something yep. where he was like dangling from it. It's just if you were to do that on a movie set, like you'd have an ambulance next door and there'd be a trained like stuntman and someone would be operating. It's like we don't need for these things to be like actually dangerous. There's ways to get the entertainment value without risking people's lives, literally. Like it's crazy. Definitely. So a quick break. We wanted to tell you before we get back to this really fun conversation about the writing that we do every week. Lee, we write an essay like every week. How does that work? 
Well, it's pretty impressive if I do say so myself that we publish an original essay every single week covering the creator economy. Yeah, basically every Monday we sort of get together and Yash, who's amazing, works with us to like put together a bunch of research and we just talk through a bunch of ideas and kind of come up with this concept. And then we work it into an essay every week. And usually it's something that's pretty evergreen, but kind of centered on something that's really timely that's happening in the creator economy. So examples are like, Facebook getting into audio, you know, Clubhouse new valuation, but like plunging downloads, how creators are sort of coping with different things that platforms are doing, just like anything that's interesting or new, we want to be talking about it every week. So if you want to sign up, you should go to every.to. Every is a writer collective focused on business. We are the writers that are focused on business that have collected together. Not only are we covering the creator economy, we're also participants in the creator economy. So would really appreciate your support by subscribing to our newsletter at every.to. So enjoy. I hope you love the writing. I hope you love this conversation. And now back to the conversation. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your role or how you're described on your profile. You're, you're oftentimes described as a influencer watchdog. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it says on your bio, on your insider page. So you're an influencer watchdog. You have this history of doing investigative pieces and uncovering accusations against prominent creators like David Dobrik or Jeffrey Starr. Can you talk a little bit more about what it means to be an influencer watchdog and why that role is necessary today? Definitely. I love that term. And I only recently settled on it, uh, like really recently, because for a while, as I was trying to navigate my beat and figure out what my specialty was, I noticed that I was drawn to the same types of stories and the same types of narratives, but I didn't have a word for it. And when I was in college, I studied journalism and I was really fascinated and did a lot of political reporting. Like I did a bunch of political internships and they were considered watchdog reporters because they kept up with politicians and really had this sort of role of built-in accountability for our political system. And when people say the word watchdog reporter, they're usually talking about like politics or maybe business. But I really like the term influencer watchdog because that speaks to the nature of what I'm trying to do. And that I feel like We have all of these people in our society who are extremely influential through their money, through their audience, through their fame, through their relationships with their fans. And there aren't very many journalists or people in general holding those people accountable. There are definitely some, like outside of journalism, the drama and commentary community on YouTube was a sort of self-policing system that originated. But I feel like there's a strong need for a more like traditional journalistic role within the influencer industry that I think is really exemplified by what we saw with the Me Too movement and that reporting in the Hollywood sphere. And that was really inspirational to me as I was studying the field. And I just saw this potential for there to be so many stories of those types of abuses where you just don't have reporters looking into them because we don't think of them with the same seriousness as we think of politics and politicians. So that was kind of where that came from for me. Right. What are some of the challenges associated with being an influencer watchdog? Like, do you get scared going up against creators who have these armies of fan bases all around the world? I'm just curious about the dynamics. Yeah, there's so much. And I feel like I encounter such new complex dynamics almost every day that I'm at work because there are lots of, it's a big balancing act. One of the things that I definitely have encountered more and more are those stan armies. And beyond that, it's become pretty routine for me to have a certain subset of fans be angry about a story or be angry about 
what they perceive as my bias or my opinion toward their favorite creator. And that makes sense to me. I feel like that's pretty standard. There's also this sort of online reactionary movement to cancel culture that I find to be really interesting. And you see them, they're like, some of them have small YouTube channels. Some of them are more like they lean toward trolls. Some of them are more like snarkers, like snarker communities. But that has been a really interesting, unexpected thing is that I have all of these little accounts that are really trying to prove that like I'm out to get someone, that I'm like part of this big plot to like destabilize certain YouTubers. So there's like a conspiracy underbelly, I think, to influencer reporting, Mm -hmm. which doesn't even really surprise me because like in high school and college, I used to be on those guru gossip forums a lot. And I think that was kind of what fostered some of my interest in the first place was the idea of online gossip and online snarking. So that's one thing. And then what I'm still feeling out a lot in my position is my relationship with some of those creators. Because I think if you look at how access entertainment journalism has always worked, it's like there's really favorable relationships between journalists and the celebrities that they cover. And that's how you get interviews with people. And that's how you get exclusive information. In the creator world, it's a little bit more adversary, (laughs) but it depends on the person. Yeah. Some people really want to be friends. Some people really want like a shoulder to cry on or what they view as like an objective outsized source to help them like process information online. And then with other people, it becomes like a legal battle for stories to get published. I went through that with the David Dobrik stuff. I went through that with the Jeffree Star story. And in those cases, I like feel really glad that I ended up at Insider because we have an amazing legal support team. But it's definitely very Mm. clear to me that the type of work that we're doing would not be possible without an organization that has like legal resources. Yeah, I'd love to hear about some of the differences in like the methodology, not just like in terms of defending against legal, you know, threats or whatever, but also just the basic like reporting methodology that like there are some people in tech who think like, oh, the future is going to be citizen journalism and everyone's just going to be able to like have a Twitter account with a voice. And that's how the truth will get out over time. And like, I, I kind of feel like they don't really understand what all goes on and like the resources that need to support someone to do the kind of work you do. And I'm just curious, like if you could tell us a little bit more about what all goes into what you do and how it's really different from like, you know, like you alluded to earlier, like a gossip channel or something where it's like, it doesn't have that kind of structure or, or tradition of journalistic practices. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I didn't expect is sort of almost taking on a little bit of an educational role sometimes because you do get people who don't really know what journalism is. And I think that's completely fair. Like it's a very murky field that has changed a lot and continues to change. But people really do not always recognize the work that goes into an investigation at a journalistic publication versus like a one hour commentary video that is a deep dive. Like people see those as equivalent, but there's so many moving parts when it comes to an investigation like this, because not only do you often have multiple reporters working on different elements When I first started the reporting, I was initially doing it as like part of a duo with one of my coworkers. And we were both interviewing various people in the vlog squad sphere. And then eventually I got a tip about what would then become Hannah's story. And so I handled that part solo, just in terms of doing those interviews and writing the story itself. However, that's only step one, because then it goes to like six or seven different editors. Obviously, like my primary editor goes back and forth with me to get it into 
as good of a shape as it can get, but then it has to go through our investigations team. And our investigation team will have all of these like extra things to do in, in terms of fact checking that I wouldn't even necessarily have heard of before. Like I remember in the process of doing this story, our investigations editor had me send him all of the screenshots and photos and videos that the women provided to me to show that they were there and like, oh, I took this picture of David while I was there, etc. Our investigations editor like stripped yeah. all of them to get all the metadata to prove that like this photo was actually taken at this time on this date in this location. So it's like that type of work goes into it. And then I think the most strenuous part of the process is often that legal back and forth, which people don't see. And of course, you can only share so much of it with your audience. But I mean, that's a lot of work. Because you'll have them come back and be like, nothing in this story is true. And then you have to kind of like prove it to them before you can publish that like you have done your due diligence, ultimately. Right. It sounds like the kind of work and process and resource intensiveness that would be really challenging for one person with a substack to do. Absolutely. I know that like, personally, I don't think I could ever do this work without an organization behind me. I want to play devil's advocate for a moment on the role of an influencer watchdog. So and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. So I can definitely see the need for a watchdog reporter to cover politics to cover tech companies that are pervasive in our daily lives, um, other like, influential industries and people. For influencers, I think the counter argument that could be made is these are people who didn't really like maybe didn't even want to be famous. They just accidentally became so they they were doing this content creation as a labor of love as a hobby and then amassed an audience. And now they're famous. They've sort of been elected by the people into this position without necessarily seeking it out themselves. And I, I think secondly, the other counter argument is, well, you know, if your politician is doing something that's not great, like you can't just up and leave and move to another country, another state as easily, or you can't, you know, stop using your Apple phone, stop using App Store, Facebook, all of these products that are critical now, essential to our daily lives. But for an influencer, if if they're doing something that you don't like and abusing their influence in some way, you could just elect to stop watching their content. You could unsubscribe, block them, mute them, whatever. The power is decentralized and people can just elect to stop following them. And so those would be, I think, the counter arguments for why influencers don't deserve the level of scrutiny as some of the other watchdog reporting disciplines. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. Definitely. And I think that those are really good like trains of thought to pursue. And I think in terms of the first one, the way that I view investigative journalism, and I think the way that it traditionally is viewed, is you look to who has the power. And so in the influencer sphere, I think people still don't necessarily even grasp how much power these people have. Because I think Mm -hmm. we traditionally view power as accumulating a lot of money, accumulating, you know, power politically through the political process, um, or by having lots of like real estate, for example, we think of like, oh, well, that person owns every building on this block, they have so much power here. Um, Hopefully, somebody is making sure that they're paying their bills and not exploiting people with influencers. And I think this even feeds into the second train of thought a little bit. The power is something that is a little more intangible. The power can have something to do with money. It can have something to do with assets. But a lot of times, it's the power that the creator has over the fan. A lot of people refer to that as like a parasocial relationship. And those relationships come into play so much with the field. 
end these types of abuses. Like with the David Dobrik story, for example, like people have described that as like a classic date rape scenario, which I don't entirely disagree with. But I think the main difference is that the only reason that the women were in the apartment with that night was because of the allure of viral fame and the idea that they could trust those guys because they knew them because they had watched so much of their content and like thought that they had this idea of who these guys really were. And so there was like a level of trust there and a thing that drew them in to that environment that ended up being really, really unsafe. So I feel like that is one way that that parasocial relationship can be manipulated. And I feel like we're only beginning to grasp that those types of relationships exist. I know I was having a conversation the other day uh, with someone in the commentary YouTube space And he was telling me from his perspective, 10 years ago, uh, when Minecraft, the video game was booming on YouTube, and you had all of these Minecraft YouTubers building these massive fan bases of young kids. He was like, you know, at the time, we didn't call those parasocial relationships. At this point in time, not only do we recognize them for what they were and are, but we're also just beginning to realize all of the consequences of that. Because you have entire like, generations of fans who evolved the way that they think and the way that they act because of what these creators were serving to them. And then you also have all of these fans that were abused in some way. Uh, There's so much grooming that goes on in these like online spaces. And I feel like that's one thing that drives me is that I fear that in terms of media literacy, parents of children who watch and consume this stuff all the time, I don't think everybody is aware of how much power these creators have over their kids, but then also the accessibility where your kid could be like messaging someone and you wouldn't even necessarily know. So I feel like there's almost like a public safety element to it. And with the current James Charles scandal that's going on, like I think that's really exemplified because it's like you had this super, super powerful creator abusing his power with possibly dozens of young child fans in ways that could really harm them. Mm, Yeah, those are all really great points. I want to get your thoughts on like what needs to happen in the future to serve as a check and balance system on this class of increasingly powerful individuals who don't really have that much oversight. So obviously there's influencer watchdogs like yourselves who are covering the industry from media companies. I've also noticed that platforms are rolling out different creator codes, creator guidelines as a way to sort of stipulate the rules of engagement and essentially hold the creators on their platforms to a set of guidelines with regards to the content that they're posting and their behavior. But all of those seem to be kind of like Mm wishy-washy and there's not really any real enforcement or consequences Mm -hmm. outside of the platform itself. Like the worst that can happen, I think, is just like your content gets suspended or your account gets taken down or something like that, but nothing in the real world really happens as a consequence. So what do you think needs to happen in order to push all of that forward and to keep these creators accountable to the powers, to the power that they do have? Like, does regulation need to evolve? What would you like to see happen? I feel like you almost need a grab bag of different things implemented to start down that path of how do we make these online landscapes more healthy And I think part of the issue is that YouTube, if we just are looking at YouTube, YouTube doesn't really view itself as like a massive employer, but I do. Right. Because not only do you you have all of these like celebrity YouTubers, but there's this massive YouTube middle and lower class um, of creators who make at least some of their income 
from YouTube, but YouTube doesn't have like an HR structure. You don't have like a boss at YouTube. And one thing that I've covered a lot over the past few years is when a smaller creator gets an action taken against them by YouTube's automated systems, like their whole channel can get, you know, demonetized or they can have a video removed and they didn't actually break whatever rule or guideline it is that the bot is claiming they did, but there's no one for them to talk to. There's no recourse. There's no manager to like help you if you are a YouTuber with 50,000 subscribers. You're just kind of on your own. Yeah, there's no like judicial system for them to go right. to and be like, this law was applied to me and it should not have. Yeah. To so I think that YouTube needs to really invest in and other tech companies as well that do kind of serve as almost de facto employers. I think there needs to be more of an investment in like a human structure um, with these industries. But then beyond that, I think that we really just need like a politician to take on this idea of online exploitation as policy, because there's so much that I think could be done, not only with children, I think children is probably the most pressing issue. But beyond that, there really aren't particularly like rights for creators that fit the digital Mm. age we're in. We don't really have any sort of legislative framework for the internet that is effective. Yeah, I could talk about this all day. (laughs) Um, I am very interested in this topic. And I just wrote a post that got published yesterday about UCI, Universal Creative Mm -hmm. Income, (laughs) kind of the online creators equivalent to UBI, Universal Basic Income. And I think there's a lot of parallels in the ideas here around how these companies are effectively employers. They're effectively creating entire economies on their platforms, economies in which there's suppliers, consumers, there's public spaces, private spaces, people who are earning a lot, people who are earning very little. And they're like nascent little worlds comparable to like nation states sometimes in their level of power and resources that are available to them and the richness of their ecosystems. But there's not really any sort of support structures or infrastructure to help the bottom of the economy in these platform ecosystems the same way that exists in the offline world. And so this piece yesterday was an exploration of how do we nurture the next generation of talent and the long tail of creative people who are doing work in these ecosystems, but not getting compensated for it. And I think this conversation extends that beyond just compensation and money and income to like, what are the protections that need to be in place for people, for consumers and processes to keep in check these digital, they're almost like digital politicians, Mm -hmm. like people who are really influential, large businesses and corporations in these online ecosystems, their level of power. It's interesting, like one analogy that comes to mind for me for the kind of incentive structure that's set up most maturely in YouTube, but it's coming to a lot of other places on the internet now with like creators making money, is it almost be like if like DoorDash paid you exponentially more, the shorter your delivery time mm-hmm. was. So if you like shaved off a minute and you got like a hundred extra dollars or you shaved off two minutes and you got like a thousand extra dollars, people would be going crazy on the streets everywhere. And a lot of people who don't want to do that would opt out. But the people who kind of don't mind it or maybe even like it would like be the ones who really succeed at it. And then there'd be like a ton of car crashes and just terrible stuff that happens. And with YouTube, it's kind of like that in a sense, because they're paying people a lot of money for generating a lot of views. The more views you generate, the more money you make. And so it's like, well, what can you do to create views? It's kind of like YouTube's like not our problem, basically. But it's like this externality where it's like a lot of the reason why prediction markets are illegal is because let's say if you could bet on the timing that someone would die and you like put a million dollars on it and then you go kill that person. It's like you don't want to have a market way to like create incentives for people to do things that cause damage to other people or death or whatever, like terrible situations for other people. And it's like YouTube has this, it has an externality 
And it's like there's shared blame, personally. It's like there's blame for the creators, but there's also blames for the platforms that just say, oh, if people do something bad, then like, whatever, I guess it's not us. Because they're dealing in a dynamic system where people will select in, it's totally open, there's no filter, and they're not enforcing any sort of standard. I think that's a really good metaphor, because I always think that in like a philosophical sense, you look at what we are capitalizing off on these platforms, but then I also just question the type of human behavior that's being incentivized on these platforms and in these cultures. I was talking to a young woman just a couple days ago who had this TikTok blow up after the David Dobrik story came out, where she was describing how her mother, who was unfortunately passed away, was in a David Dobrik video. And in the video, her mom, who would experience homelessness, particularly in the later years of her life, and during those bouts of homelessness, she was addicted to drugs. So a lot of times she would be undergoing like some sort of like psychosis. And in the video, she's in the middle of the street and like David pulls up to her and they have like a conversation with her and she like runs away and they kind of laugh at her. They make her into the butt of the joke. And that is so disturbing to me on so many levels. (laughs) Cause like this video came out millions of people saw it and no one questioned that. And it just really makes me think like, what types of behavior are we modeling for the younger generation that consumes this content? And mm-hmm. also, what's the incentive there? Like, this is someone who we should be feeling bad for and not be laughing at. This is like someone that we yeah. should be thinking, like, how can we help this person? Not like, oh, ha ha ha. Like, people aren't objects, but the way that it's framed kind of yeah. turned her into an object. And so that's something that I think, even though it's not YouTube's fault that like that happened, it's not any one individual at YouTube's fault that this sort of perverse incentive has played out. That doesn't mean it's any less consequential. And so I think we kind of have to reckon with that. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Going back to what you were describing before with each company is essentially employing this large labor force who's working on the platform, but it doesn't have an HR system or any sort of processes for managing this large workforce. And they they should implement things like that. I almost feel like there are downside risks to each company doing that independently on their own Mm -hmm. and having no consistency across the entire industry. Like I think what will arise from that is kind of a fragmented landscape where different platforms have different guidelines for what's okay, what's not okay, content that will be promoted versus unpromoted (laughs) or whatever that word is I can't think of right now. It kind of reminds me of the way that moderation Mm -hmm. is done today by these tech platforms where everyone is trying to like navigate where the lines are drawn. And I remember that week with the insurrection Mm -hmm. at the US Capitol, like it felt like every social platform was having emergency meetings internally to decide like, do we deplatform Trump? Like what's going on? What is everyone else doing? And trying to figure out the rules on their own, leading to like a very disjointed ecosystem of like what's okay to say on one platform versus not okay to say on another platform. And I think it would be beneficial potentially to all of the platform companies as well as to creators to just have one standardized set of like rules and a code of conduct so that they don't screw it up and they don't spend the time navigating, exerting those cycles to figure out like what's okay on one platform versus not okay on another. I mean, I feel like what I'm describing might have consequences of its own, but leaving every company to implement their own like, quote unquote, HR system for creators, that feels messy and challenging for creators to navigate in this like multi-platform fragmented world. Definitely. And I think that it kind of is almost like we have an opportunity here in that the internet has been heralded as like something that can bring us all together and you can access the same YouTuber regardless of where you live. And it's this idea of like open borders in a lot of ways. 
Mm-hmm. And I think like, obviously, there would be a set of challenges when coming up with a standardized code of conduct. But it would also, to me, have an opportunity to be like, this is a version of our world that we can shape to be better. <laughs> and these are like, you know, yeah. like the digital currency, the digital like politicians, all of those things, we have so much of an opportunity to evolve them. And I think that can be terrifying. But also, if you're optimistic about it, it can also be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's interesting what you said about like, oh, like the internet can bring everyone together or whatever, because I think it brings up the point of like, It feels like it's tribalized us a lot more. And you brought up earlier the people who are like kind of reactionary to the cancel culture idea, like, you know, being kind of, it doesn't even matter if you're reporting on someone who they care about at all. It's not like they're a fan. They're just against almost just the idea of accountability Mm -hmm. because they see it as cancellation. They see it as unfair or for, for whatever reason. And um, it reminded me of, I was reading this thing on just like the Wikipedia article for like the printing press. And it was like, the printing press led to blah, 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 and all this stuff that we know, like the Protestant Reformation or whatever, and like change society or all this stuff. But the thing it said that I didn't know was that it it led to like the solidification of different languages in Europe, because it used to just be like everyone who was literate spoke Latin or not spoke, but like wrote things in Latin. And it was like the kind of like lingua franca. But then it was like all the different national languages, like, you know, like Spanish, Portuguese, French made the transition into writing to a greater extent than they had previously and national identity became like literacy spread and national identity spread and like there's this book that talks about it that i bought and i haven't read yet but it's interesting how it's fragmented us further and kind of like you know lead to your point of can there just be like one standard i think i would love that to like see you know it's like maybe we can treat it like how the fda treats the food and and drink Mm -hmm. and drugs or whatever that like are allowed to be sold in this country but like (laughs) you know we need similar standards for this too but it's like it's so hard to create anything like that anymore because it seems like there's been this kind of like you know curdling of culture where it's like there's just these different little clumps and there's no like space between them to communicate in any way. I think people would decry it as censorship though, if there was one standard set of rules, because I think these platforms have such collectively such large market share that effectively it would be one set of rules for what you can and cannot say. Yeah. And I think that's a really valid criticism that people could have. It's such a difficult thing to even imagine with where we're at because online platforms are so messy and divided right now that it's so difficult to Mm -hmm. envision this sort of coming together to do something that would apply to everyone equally. Like that is so difficult to even idealize. But I love the idea of like comparing in a lot of ways, like the internet to the printing press. And I am very fascinated by the creation of identity as it related to the printing press and the creation of identity as it relates to the internet. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting too, because like, I think the people who are kind of most reactionary, like anti-cancel culture tend to identify as like maybe libertarian-ish, but like in a lot of ways, the most libertarian solution to this problem is what you're doing. It's like, if you think the solution to speech is like more speech, then like all you're doing is speech. You're just saying like, here, I have validated some facts. This is what happened. You can decide what to do with it. You're not censoring anyone, you know, <laughs> like it's, you're just providing information out to the commons that people will do with what they may individually. For sure. It's really interesting how that sort of contradiction doesn't seem to occur to people. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like a lot of times when people are frustrated with just human nature in general, they want to find like some sort of scarecrow that can be like, oh, it's her fault. And I feel like with some of the criticisms I get from the anti-cancel culture crowd, it's like what you're really mad at is just the mob and how people perceive information in large groups. Because I know like one repeated thing that kept coming up with this story was, oh, you're attacking David, you're focusing on David, Dom is the perpetrator. And it's like, that's so interesting to me. Because if you actually read the article, it's 90% about Dom, 
we only really talk about David like in the beginning and then throughout whenever he is relevant. But what they're actually complaining about is the fact that David's the more famous one. So of course he's going to get the most attention. <laughs> like they're actually just complaining about, yeah. you know, like cultural attitudes and how people process information. Right. On that note, I want to end our discussion with a topic that I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm sure is a topic that you spend a lot of time thinking about as well, which is like, how can we move to an internet with a healthier content ecosystem? It seems like a lot of the issues that you've uncovered, a lot of the things that have happened and people who've amassed fandom online are doing extreme behavior that is pushing various boundaries in a ploy to get attention and increase views and clicks and just fandom. And that's the way that the internet works when ad dollars and reach is correlated with each other, like, and the predominant way to monetize is through advertising. So what needs to happen for us to incentivize a content ecosystem that has content that's actually enriching and nourishing to us versus just trying to get as many views and clicks as possible. I feel like that is such a fascinating discussion. And I feel like you see platforms trying to approach that. Like you have Instagram thinking about like removing likes, Mm -hmm. like little measures like that in terms of just how the platforms actually operate that would drastically change user experience. I love those types of conversations around like, what would these implementations actually do? How would they affect the way that we interact with platforms? And I think that would really be a good starting point because I don't think at this point we can just like scratch the platforms all together and like start with a whole new fresh idealized version of, of these yeah. social media platforms. I think it would be so cool to experiment with the idea of for Twitter, for example, like you can only tweet a certain number of times a day. I think personally, <laughs> if I could only tweet <laughs> like five times a day you would have to put so much more thought into those five tweets. And I feel like things like that, even though they sound a little silly, like I spent a lot of time thinking about how do I make my own experience better, like for myself, since like so much of my life and identity is shaped by the platforms that I use. And so it's like with Twitter, I know that the way to have a better experience with it is to just use it less. Like I've taken the app off my phone. Like I can only use it on my computer, but not every app is that way. Like with TikTok, I don't feel like I need to use it less to have a better experience. So then I'm kind of like, well, what does TikTok have that Twitter doesn't have? Or like, what is the difference between those two platforms? And then I feel like so much of it comes back to the design, like the design of the platforms and how that affects the way users use them. So I think platform design is like a really big chunk of that. But then I also think hopefully as discourse around these types of issues like continues to develop, you hope that like cultural attitudes will shift in the right direction. And I think that we already are seeing that, particularly with just how women and consent is viewed on the internet and not just women, but I think like consent in general and how it's viewed on the internet. In the early 2000s, I think you had this string of young girls who became big internet targets in a way that you don't really see anymore. Like the MySpace era was really toxic toward young women. Mm -hmm. And like, we're even still just starting to understand some of the consequences of that era of the internet. And like today's era of the internet is obviously not perfect. It's not better in a lot of ways. It's worse in other ways. But you do see that like with shifting cultural attitudes toward minorities and women and gay people, and that comes into play in terms of how we regard each other online and in terms of how we create content online, like what is acceptable and what is not. So my ultimate hope is just that with like accountability journalism, of course, but then also just 
general social and cultural progress, that the internet will become a healthier place Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it can't just be the platforms unilaterally changing their algorithms to favor healthier content because there's this entire other side, which is the consumer side. And I think both have to go hand in hand and consumers need to educate themselves and change their own behavior of what they elect to consume. And the platforms need to also build to enable that. And together, hopefully we can have a more socially and morally responsible internet. Yeah. Agreed. That's a pretty beautiful place to end. <laughs> no, it's really good. <laughs> I agree. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. Well, amazing. So thank you so much, Kat, for being here with us today. Really enjoyed this conversation. Learned a lot. Um, gave us a lot more topics to think about and honestly leaving with a lot more questions. And it's just one of those really awesome mind expanding conversations that we love to have. So thank you again for being here. Thanks for having me. I loved it. I feel like these types of philosophical internet conversations are so fun. So thank you so much. (laughs) Agree. (laughs) Well, thanks for having him with us. And uh, we'll we'll have to regroup again in like, you know, maybe six months or a year and see if we've made any of that progress that we're hoping for culturally, technologically, or in whatever way, uh, you know, we can get, I guess. <laughs> Perfect. Cool.